0: Good morning, Disciples Church. Greetings, guests. We're glad you're here with us today. Beautiful day the Lord has made. What a joy it is to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, testify of His good work on the cross on, on our behalf. and um, What a joy it is to, to fellowship, to pray, to break bread, study God's good word. I want to ask you to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the letter of Ephesians. Today we're in Sermon 70 through this marvelous letter and uh, we're, we're winding down to the finish and uh, what a joy it's been. Um, thankful to have you here with us. I know some of you are going through our membership class, first hour, get to know our church. Some of you are just new and visiting, we're thankful you're here. Um, Disciples Church is the first Baptist church of Bakersfield. We, this month of April, are celebrating our a movement into our 133rd year of gospel ministry here in Bakersfield and thankful for God's endurance of us and his work in and through our family and the ways he's strengthening marriages and equipping parents and binding us together as the body of Christ it's a joy to to be together and to be his people to be on mission together um, today we're going to do part two of this smaller section of chapter 6. Last week we studied verse 5 through 8, and today we'll focus primarily on verse 9. And I'm just grateful for the the ways in which he's teaching and molding and shaping us, convicting us, and readying us for what's ahead. I pray you have come hungry for God's Word this morning. Um, I'm excited and privileged to preach it. Look with me at Ephesians Chapter 6, let's read verse 5 through 8 to remind us of where we were last week, set the table for where we're headed today. Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. And then today's verse, verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. As we move into verse 9 today, Paul turns his instruction towards the masters, those who are in leadership, those who have authority over others. The word master here in the Greek, as Paul wrote it, is kiros, which means one in authority, someone who is lord over another, Unlike during Paul's time, as we discussed last week, where so much of the population he was writing to lived in modes of slavery, in modes of servanthood, and uh, the different forms that it exists. But, I mean, we're talking one third to half of the population in the Roman Empire in that time were operating in some form of slavery. And, and in this way, we don't know that, we don't relate to that. But no one in our church is in this capacity. But it doesn't make this instruction obsolete, because we do have many who are in authority over others in a significant way. Maybe for you, you are a parent of a child, or a husband of a wife, or a boss or an employer of employees. Or maybe you're in civil government where you have authority or ruling power over others. The instruction Paul has here for masters is good instruction that fits with other passages in Scripture for what is God-honoring, for what we are to do to live lives as Christians as we specifically lead others. So we can lean in this morning and be encouraged and be helped and be convicted uh, as we look to Paul's encouragements and counsel here in chapter 6, verse 9. We continue to lean in to God's Word. We continue to trust God's Word as He is ordained to give it to us, to reveal Himself to us and to reveal His commands to us in His written Word. For God's Word declares in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, For correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so, this passage included in that is God's ordained word for us that we would have all those things that are promised from his good word for our sanctification and growth. Now, before we dive in, I want to address again this morning something I paused to to address last week, and that is that some have contention with God's Word, including instruction to slaves and masters. Some press, or would critique Paul's words here, of being lacking of what is most important, that is, needed emphasis to be done with the practice of slavery, is the main critique that they feel like is missing while repentance of sinful slavery is a good and needed thing wherever it exists in the world there are a few things that we need to remember about this passage in its context uh, and Paul's focus for it in his words here first what I mentioned last week and if you missed last week I would encourage you to slow down go to our website Take a little bit of time to open your Bible and really hear some of the foundational layers we took in studying verse 5 through 8. Especially as we looked at bondservants, slaves, those those who are serving others. And in that we took time, and I'll mention it again today, that not all slavery is the same. Uh, there were many mutual agreements In that society specifically, where Paul's writing this, where contracted service to another was not only helpful, but very morally permissible. And so we have to be careful when we hear that word to not only think of one context of gross um, wickedness that we see in many forms of slavery, but that in all slavery is the same. We have to understand culturally what we're talking about. Second... A close reading of this passage shows that Paul neither condemns nor commends the activity of slavery, but his focus instead is on the heart of the one who is enslaved or the master over them and their opportunity or duty to honor God in this unique role that they're in, in this time of life. Either way, the reason why we don't critique or look to omit Paul's words here in Ephesians chapter 6 on this topic, like some would like to see, is because God, the holy and perfect God, ordained them to be in Holy Scripture. And therefore they are perfect and trustworthy and helpful to us. Another layer that helps us with this is to never lose sight of the very biblical fact that in God's sovereignty... Many times, and throughout human history we see this, there is ongoing hardship that we experience, injustice that we experience. Just spend any amount of time looking at the most faithful who have come before us, and they suffered. They dealt with gross injustice and persecution. Many of them died for their faith. So we need to remember that God is at work, even in times and in situations where we might cry great injustice, great sinful atrocity that we still the people of God are still walking by faith and not by sight that even as we remember back to our time in the minor prophet Habakkuk where Habakkuk cries out to God as people are going through great struggle Persecution, He says, Lord, when is it going to end? Can we see a change in this? And God in his perfect sovereignty says, it's not going to end anytime soon. It's actually going to get worse. I'm going to rise up your enemy against you for my perfect will and purpose. He, God says, sit back and watch what I do. And in that church, we need to be reminded that God in his holy perfection is at work in all things, even in gross Injustices and the wickedness of man, we see throughout Scripture that the Sovereign Lord is at work. So, we recognize that as we move through this broken world, as we engage uh, sinful habits and tendencies of others, as we fight our own flesh, we look to walk by faith and not by sight. We look to speak and to live out the beautiful things of God and, and for all that they will do for His glory and others' good. Um, but it's a struggle. I mean, the reality is it's a struggle. We we can be in situations where we can look left and right and say, man, why does this continue? I know for me, one of the things I really struggle with is how false teachers of God's Word or unbiblical churches continue, uh, in some cases even thrive in their growth and their swell, without just God com- just shutting them down and just removing uh, these wolves uh, from pulpits and, and the answer is I don't know why I don't know why the Lord ordains to, that they would continue he's perfectly able to smite them he's perfectly able to wipe the earth of them uh, but in his perfect will and way they are serving a purpose do I understand it I don't um, are we to speak against falsehood still we are Uh, But at the same time, we walk by faith, church, and not by sight, uh, as the lostness of the world perpetuates itself. Paul's emphasis here is the same as the emphasis to those who are in slavery, those who are under authority. Um, The attitude and approach that honors Christ in these things, in even these hardships, is... it, it applies not only to the servants, but Paul is saying to the masters, which is why he goes where he goes in his opening words. Look with me. Ephesians 6, 9. Masters, do the same to them. This is pretty potent. When Paul says to those in authority, those who are over others, in whatever context that may be, do the same. And when he does this, he's saying, despite the differences of your duty and or of your roles that you play, maybe one who's in authority or one who is subordinate to authority, the kingdom principles of why you do what you do and how you go about doing it are the same. In other words, what is righteous and God-honoring is why we do what we do as Christians and should determine how we do it. And this applies to men and women in both contexts. What this means is that we could quickly then substitute the verb, the unique action that goes with the role of the one party, and have the same counsel for both. When he says, do the same, we can go back to verses 5 through 8, think of leadership, and then think of the the counsel that's there. I want to do that with you um, to apply what he's saying here in verse 9. And so... Look with me. We'll substitute a couple of these to see how this applies to the leader. Lead your earthly subordinates with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering leadership with a good, Will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Let me remind you something important we touched on last week fear and trembling, not there is not cowering. The word fear means respect, reverence. And the word trembling there is speaking of seriousness, that we are to do this with respect. And seriousness. We who are given roles of leadership or authority over others are to exercise that authority to the glory of God with respect and with seriousness. In other words, we don't get to be flippant about what we decide or how we direct others. We do this with a sincere heart and not just with outward actions. The responsibility to lead others, to direct others, to make decisions that affect others' lives is truly a serious one. Leaders, owners of businesses or companies, parents, husbands, coaches, government officials, do you take your role seriously? Do you do it with a sincere heart? and in a way that honors Christ. We must take most serious our leading of others so that Christ is honored in how we lead, and how we direct others, always remembering it is not just for self or the flesh, but it is ultimately for Christ that we do these things. For as Paul, we are reminded... That we too are bond servants of Christ. We too are slaves of Christ. That word "doulos" there is used wildly in Scripture. Most of our modern English translations interpret that word "doulos," which means slave, with the word servant. It's a slave. It's it's it's. We too are slaves of Christ. And again, we have to have a a wider view of that word, and we have to see with the apostles, those who were in Christ. In, in this time, they cherished that title. It was the great joy of their lives to be a slave of Christ. But we must see we too are under authority. And with the days that God gives us under the sun, we are to exercise our leadership over others in a way that does the will of God from the heart. Sometimes as leaders, we need to make hard decisions that will not be popular with those that we lead. Think about that for a moment. If our flesh is at work in considering those hard decisions, we may not make hard decisions. Why? Because our flesh longs to be people-pleasers. And then so then we don't do what's best. We do what people who are being led want to be done. Paul helps us here as we are to do the same Which means, as we look back to verse 5-8, through we are then to lead with goodwill as to the Lord and not unto man. In other words, we are not to be people pleasers. That's the work of the flesh. That's a sinful approach to leadership and authority. I was talking with another uh, preaching pastor from a very large church here in Bakersfield. Um, And in our encouragement this week, as we shared together... Uh, We were acknowledging the fleshly temptation uh, that we faced at many junctions over this last year and all that came with it to make decisions for our congregations based on what the people wanted to see happen. Uh, And many shepherds were tempted to fall off the fence towards one opinion on a given topic or another in order to essentially do what the people or the most influential people were calling for. The problem is, in doing that, not all people were calling for the same thing. And so, when you get into the game of people-pleasing, one party is satisfied, and then the other is not. As you would look to appease one, then then another is not. And the simple fact is this. Leaders cannot, should not get caught up in the game of people-pleasing. For when you do, you're a poor leader. You essentially, in the church context, it's like shepherds, Letting the sheep make the decisions for the flock. But that's not God's design. God's design is that the shepherds would make decisions for the flock. And the sheep would trust those decisions. Leaders have to make hard decisions all the time. And often these decisions are not popular. But if done right, they're for the good of the people. Think of how how often that's been the case in your parenting. Your child wants something very different than what you're saying is going to happen. But God's good design is that the parent is the leader, is the authority one there, and the child is to respect that. I remember many decisions my parents made that I'm just like, this, this is lame. I, I have a much better view of how this should go. And yet to speak of it that way would have just been grossly sinful. And, and really the check in my own heart needed to do business. What's amazing is looking back many times I would see Oh yeah, actually their way was a lot better than mine. It would have been a train wreck if it would have gone my way. And so that's often the way it is. Um, and even when it's not, even maybe even the person, the subordinate was right, there's still a God-honoring way by which the leader is called to lead. Um, and this is especially true of the leaders of God's people. For those we lead don't belong to us. They belong to Christ. This is Christ church. And so you are to be led by the principles and commands of Holy Scripture, not fleshly reasoning or personal preferences. And so, will there be times where leaders make decisions, parents, husbands, bosses, elders of the church, that are not popular with the people? Yeah. But see with me that it's not the people's role to decide. It's the leader's. And the key is, when those in authority over others exercise that authority, and they do it in the ways that Paul is saying it is to be done here in verses 5 through 8, to do it the same, then what you end up with is a very different kind of leader that produces a different kind of results. And that's where Paul goes next. Look with me again at our verse. Ephesians 6, 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening. Paul's point is that those who are in Christ, who are leaders, should turn from their previous fleshly practices, like threatening those they lead. Think about what you're resorting to as a leader if you have to just constantly threaten those you lead. There's missing elements of healthy and round leadership. To walk with and lead and communicate with those who are underneath you. If all you ever do is scream threats, here's this little task the boss might say, and I'm gonna fire you if you don't do it, is like the constant rhetoric. That's just poor leadership. It's lacking in many ways. It's an operation of the flesh, really, to not grow and mature in what's helpful, but just to throw threats. Think about leaders. Um, of those who are in Christ, who are obedient to God's Word, and therefore there's sanctification, there's maturity in how leadership is done. As compared to those who are outside of Christ, in their flesh only, secular leaders only have fleshly tactics or tricks to rely on. Surely you've experienced the difference in your life. Praise God that by His grace, we are transformed in our leading from threats to encouragement, from poor communication to better communication. I I love to see this in many of you over the years as Christ brings salvation in you. And then over the years, there's real sanctification. You're less quick to yell or to pose threats. You're more patient you're willing to slow down. You're efforting to communicate better in love and respect. You've seen this maybe in areas of your parenting, maybe in areas of your marriage, in areas of just walking and doing life with others, in business or in the neighborhood, in the community, how you conduct, conduct yourself online. There should be a sign in those of us who belong to Christ of maturing. We should stop our threatening. We should stop acting as according to the flesh and start acting as according to the Spirit. When we see Paul's commissioning here to leadership to stop your threatening, it's very similar to the context of the letter he's in and the words he just wrote to fathers. If you remember in chapter 6, verse 4, look up the page a little bit with me. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. This is Paul's way of saying that how you lead in Christ means that there's a change in how you do things. You're no longer enslaved to sin. The motivations of the flesh are slowing, and the motivations of the Spirit are going to work. So we don't, we don't look to sinful tactics, fleshly tactics. Paul's essentially saying there's a balanced and loving way to exercise authority that honors God. He makes the same point in his letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 3, 18 through 21. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Did you hear it? Don't be harsh with your wife as you love and lead her. Do not provoke your children as you love and lead them. And here Paul says to those in leadership, do not threaten those underneath you as you love and lead them. The reason why is because leading in the flesh is sinful. It not only dishonors God, but it's not helpful and often is very self-serving. I want to remind you of the flesh we use that term a lot in church, but what is that? The flesh is the ego of mankind, which feels an emptiness in because of our sin, and then it uses only its own resources to try to fill it. Romans eight seven says the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, it does not submit to God's law. The basic mark of the flesh is that it is unsubmissive to God. The flesh does not want to submit to God's absolute authority or rely on God's absolute mercy. The flesh says, I'll just do it myself. I'll go my own way on this one. When we give into the flesh, we're looking to serve ourselves and not God. When we lead others in the flesh, we're essentially looking out for ourselves and not what honors God or what's good for those that we lead. So, bosses, husbands, parents, think about all the times where this has been true of you, where you've led in the flesh. You've been impatient, frustrated. You've been short, angry at those you're called to lead. This happens because you're caught up in the flesh, not moved by the Spirit, you're really likely thinking much more about you than others. You're thinking about what you're not getting from them, whether it's respect or obedience or follow through or something else. And so we resort in the flesh to yelling, threatening, overreacting. When we leave from the flesh, the evidences of this are that we're lazy, we're short. We're disengaged. And we have to see, church, that this is not formative leadership, it's responsive leadership. So, this begs to ask the question then, how do I not lead from the flesh? And the answer is we need to be led by the Spirit. We did this a few weeks ago when looking at God honoring parenting. But Paul's making the same point, so I think it's worthy to slow and consider it again in this context of leadership. To really slow and consider the fruit of the Spirit as opposed to the work of the flesh. I want to read the fruit of the Spirit again to you, and I want you to think about your roles of authority. And how, if the fruit of the Spirit is applied to those things, how different our leading is. How different. How much better our christian testimony is galatians 5:22 through 23 but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Leaders, those under your authority, in whatever context that may be, are going to sin against you. They're going to disrespect you. They're going to miss your expectations for them. What they don't need is your flesh flying off the handle so that you can feel appeased or justified? Keep things going because the production is the most important thing. No, we must not resort to fleshly tactics like cursing, yelling, threatening, losing our temper, ignoring them, holding grudges, playing games. Now we need to be resting in and abiding in and relying on Christ so that the fruit of the Spirit goes to work. That your identity and your hope and your joy is in Christ, not in the production of whatever it is you're thinking about. And so you are abiding in Christ, who is the vine. And when we abide in the vine, He then works through us sanctification, produces the fruit of the Spirit in us and through us. We must see how desperate we are for constant abiding in Christ, growing in Christ all of the time, which means you can't be passive with the Word, flippant with prayer. No, we must be fervent and longing to be with the Word so the Lord is speaking His truths, His commands, regular in prayer, unceasing in walking and talking with God that we're tuned in to Him looking to honor him at each turn to make much of him walking in fellowship in the body of Christ where real accountability is happening among us it's so important that we do this why because so many days you're tired right we're struggling things are not going well that's the fall of life but in this we can't resort the flesh. No, we need to be abiding in the vine so a different fruit is produced. The fruit of the Spirit and no longer the work of the flesh. Look with me at the next part of the verse. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Those who are in leadership over others... Need to never forget that you are not the Lord of all. You are not the ultimate authority. But instead, you too are under authority. Way under. Right? Under the authority of Christ, the eternal God. For those of us who belong to Christ, male or female, rich or poor, slave or master, we have a master. What this means is that we all stand on equal ground at the foot of the cross, despite our lot or our position in this life. In that space, none of us outrank each other. All of us are 100% dependent Christ work in our place and at the foot of the cross all of us are brothers and sisters in Christ equally all of us belong to him and are called to serve and obey him in all we do the Christian life and testimony of our master our leader is the same Christian testimony for the subordinate or the leader whatever you may be See with me that the characteristics of what it means to die to self and live to Christ is the same for all of us. When considering all the ways that you might struggle to lead others, praise God that Jesus is the better and truer master. The humility that Paul is wanting for his hearers as he's writing this portion of his letter, as he's writing to leaders, He wants them to have this in view while you have great authority over those you lead you stand next to them equally before the cross of Christ for he is equally our master and we are his slaves so let's slow to ask what does it mean that Jesus is our master it means Jesus tells us what to do and we joyfully do it. Listen to Jesus' words regarding this. John chapter 14 verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You cannot love Jesus then and disregard the fact that he is God. Which means if you know that he is God, you will love him and you will submit to Him. The fact that He is God, and that love and unity with Him means you embrace His authority as God, then you will love to be ruled by Him. To love Jesus is to love His rule, His authority in your life, which then means you will keep His commands. Let me ask you, is this your true testimony? Or do you know of areas in your life where you are blatantly disobeying God and His good commands on you? Percy W. Hayward is a Bible scholar from the late 1800s, early 1900s. He's a Christian contemporary of the late A.W. Pink, J.C. Ryle. And he spoke well to this point in a quote, All sentimental talking and singing about love are vain unless by grace we show a truthful obedience. There is more hypocrisy than we suppose. Love is practical or it is not love at all. Christian, we must be so careful to think and say, I love Jesus. But then we walk disobedient to his authority in our life. Jesus says this cannot be. And I love Percy's point. First, it is not, it is not the gospel of Jesus to think that we must perform or obey enough to gain God's love. That is not the gospel. That cannot be done. It is only by grace that we are given new life in Christ. And so, church, we are reconciled to God by God. And therefore, we obey. Why? Because we are a new creation in salvation. Because the old self and its enslaved sinful ways is, has died, has been put in the grave. And the new self, with new longings for the glory of God, are born. We obey our Master because we are redeemed and given new life in Christ, a new heart for life and for God. The evidence of our new birth in Christ and true love for God then is seen in our obedience to Him. Look with me at John's first letter he wrote, 1 John chapter 5 verse 2-3. through 3. John clarifies, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Christians, if Jesus is your master, then you will joyfully embrace and submit to His commands in His ways, His design. You will not despise His commands And His commands will not be burdensome to you. Again, make this very practical for you. Are there areas of your life whereby you know you are disobeying God? You are guilty of not joyfully submitting to His way? You're doing it your way. And if so, I love you enough to say, see the unfaithfulness of that testimony. See the hypocrisy of it. Your testimony in that is not that you belong to Jesus and joyfully follow Him. Your testimony is that you have grabbed hold of certain things about Jesus and life in Christ that you like, but at the end of the day, you still do what you want. Why? Because you're still Lord of your life, not Him. This is major. Do you know when the commands of the Lord of our good Lord become burdensome in our lives, it's when we're really more interested in serving ourselves than serving Him. Do you see, to say, I I live to serve Jesus, my King, and then just to turn and go do what you want, is hypocrisy. We must do business with this. When we, in sin, set Him aside and don't see Him with the awe and the respect that the gospel has given us to have for Him, when we get our affections and our priorities focused on ourselves, this is when we begin to despise His commands or to consider them burdensome. Now I have a better way. But when we are truly regenerate, rightly focused on and treasuring Jesus as the greatest thing in our lives, as sufficient, as praiseworthy, then we will long to keep His commands and call it good, not burdensome. It is our joy, and we do not despise them. Church, it is sin that causes us to reject faithful submission to Jesus' commandments. Now, a true Christian can backslide for a moment, for a season, but in the end, the true Christian will joyfully submit to God. They will prove to belong to Him. They will repent. They will confess their sin and turn to the road that honors Him. They will not hide. They will not delay. Why? Because his or her heart has been changed. Because the good tree cannot produce a lasting crop of bad fruit. A lasting crop of bad fruit reveals what the tree really is. An unconverted tree may say they love Jesus, but their fruit and lack of faithful and lasting obedience says otherwise. Listen to John's warning in 1 John 2, 4 and 5. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word in him truly the love of God is perfected by this we know that we are in him again this doesn't mean that the true Christian doesn't have days or even seasons of real struggle sin hear me clearly a true Christian will struggle A true Christian will sin, can even do grievous sin. A true Christian can languish in immaturity. The difference is the true Christian will not stay that way. They will repent. There will be real confession of that sin and repentance. They will not produce an ongoing yield of dishonoring Fruit When loved enough, the prodding of the Holy Spirit, the words of the Holy Scripture, the accountability of a brother or sister in Christ, they'll count that as good, as helpful and humble themselves before the Lord instead of saying, "No, I've got a better way. I've got a better timeline. There will be a real trajectory of growing in sanctification. Now, this real struggle and backsliding is why we are instructed in God's Word to do church discipline, Christian discipline. God's blessed us with a way to love our brothers and sisters when they're caught in sin and are not heeding accountability unto repentance. They continue to make their own way. We are to hold them accountable, and if they continue to go unrepentantly, we are to disfellowship from them. Remove them. Why? Because their testimony says, I'm submitting to Jesus. I belong to Him. But their their testimony shows that they don't. It's it's contrary. The other reason why we are to do this is so that those who truly do belong to Him will repent, will return, will humble themselves. And those who don't will continue on in their sin and self Self righteous ways, self minded ways, therefore proving to have never been one of us. This is God's good design. We are saved by grace alone, but the evidence of that salvation is a desire and a will and a practice to obey God's commands, to serve our Lord, our Master. And to love it. The greatest news in my life is that I get to be a slave to Christ. I'm no longer a slave to sin and death. Amen? do, Do you get that? Is that good news, the best news about you? If it's not, maybe you don't understand the fullness of the gospel. This is the clarity of Jesus' words in John 14, 15. If you love me... You will keep my commandments. This is what it means for Jesus to be our master. And so I just ask you, Christian, what do you need to address so that this is your true testimony in Christ? Do not delay. Don't make excuses. Confess your sin and repent for the glory of the Lord and if there's any way by which you think you're playing a shell game with him like hey you know no no one really knows so i'm going to i'm going to go another lap around this thing he knows right my friend sent me a picture from their trip this weekend a magnet that says get ready jesus is coming what what does it say look busy Jesus is coming, look busy. And I'm just like, no, this is so stupid. He knows. There is no shell game with him. He knows. And so if you belong to him, you will will repent. You will do what honors him now, not later. He knows. Let us honor him. Let us not delay. Let us not make excuses. Let us confess our sin and live for the glory of the Lord. Amen? Amen? Look with me at the last part of our verse. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Partiality is a big word. Let's define it. It is the state or character of being partial, of having a bias or a prejudice against another. Paul is clear to say that God is not partial. Deuteronomy 10, 17-18 For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner and gives him food and clothing. Love. The emphasis of God's impartiality is linked to His justice for the fatherless and the widow. This is what James does in his letter. We studied that a few years ago. And we see that in James chapter 1, 27, and chapter 2, 1 through 4. We'll look to the chapter 2 passage in a second. But before we turn there, let me first highlight another place that Paul speaks to the impartiality of God. Romans 2, 9 through 11 There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. His righteous judgment is on all. Every person will be judged for the condition of their soul and their standing before the holy God. No one gets a pass from this. His most beloved Chosen people. We will stand in judgment. His rule is impartial. The difference between us and sinners deserving eternal wrath is our covering, Jesus Christ, paid for our sins so that God's justice remains. We who are over others must exercise wise and discerning judgment in those that we lead. We are not to do this with partiality for this is sinful again this is scripture's point James 2:1 My brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory Church the letter of James is so important to us because he's showing us what it looks like to be a faithful Christian who who continues to do the work of the Lord ongoingly he's, it is the Lord Jesus whom we serve with our days he is our master he is our lord He is the Lord of glory As James just said, He brought us out of our chains of sin and that earned us condemnation of eternal hell, and He brought us into the kingdom that He rules and reigns. This is good news. But I I ask, what does it really mean to you? Does Christ rule and reign in your life? What does that mean? Is your faith and your devotion to Him, is it growing? Is it producing fruit? Is it changing how you do this life? How you even think and talk about others? One of the signs that you're growing in sanctification is that there's no partiality in you. We see this elsewhere in Scripture. Deuteronomy 1.17 You shall not be partial in judgment, prejudice. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone for the judgment is God's. Proverbs 24:23 Partiality in judging is not good. So let me say it this way, any kind of if you use modern language, racism, elitism, economic or social bias is all a work of sinful flesh. Partiality. We must not wrongly judge people by their outward appearances or think less of others that God has made in His image those who are of the same race as us, the human race. For each one of us is created by God in His image. Church, we must see any tendency... To show favoritism or partiality is sin, and it's not in line with our faith in Christ. How might this be at work in you? What must we do to see this, to confess it, and to grow from it? Are you quick to compartmentalize others? the poor, the rich, people who dress different than you, people of other ethnicities, other cultures, people who are socially different than you, maybe educated on a different level. And here's the sad reality. We can make the mistake of handling the sinful partiality of our flesh with a sinful partiality that swings to the other end of the spectrum. So there's this distaste for for partiality, and then we swing over here, and we essentially execute partiality and judgment of this. That's essentially what we see happening in the lostness of our culture. That is the, the mode of operation for the cancel culture. Uh, This is the mode of operation for worldly ideologies like critical race theory and and wokeness. It's partiality just boxed in different to address this partiality. And it's sinful. Modern movements like BLM and Me Too are are man-made sinful ways to address sin. They're not the answer. God's word is clear to teach that all human beings matter for all of them are made in the image of God. No matter their ethnicity, their location, their social status, their gender, no matter any kind of distinction, the value of every created person ever conceived comes from the fact, their value comes from the fact that they are created by God and are an image-bearer of God. That, that's not a political statement. That's a biblical statement. As Christians, we are to rejoice in the glorious truth of the gospel, which also means that all those who repent of sin and trust in Jesus are reconciled into one family without division. That there will be of our family, our blood-bought family, people of every tribe and tongue and nation. This is good news, church. This is the message that Paul preaches as he points to the cross of Jesus, our ultimate hope and the means for this kind of unity in Galatians 3, 25-29. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Paul's not arguing against the reality of distinctions and diversity. That reality is all around. What he does in this text is demonstrate the beauty and the power of the gospel. The, the very people of faith in Christ are the most different and distinct, and in many ways opposites in, in our cultural applications, and yet are all together united in one blood bought family where we're made by God to be brothers and sisters through Christ. Amen? I, this is the amazing blessing in the light of all that's happening, all the fracture, all the ways sin is at work, all the, all the wicked ways that we're, that we're telling people how they think and why they did what they did, all the ways that separation and division is being perpetuated around us. Only the gospel of Christ unites us truly. Black Lives Matter can't do this, nor any other modern movement of man. Our hope is in Jesus. The answer for healing and unity and right judgment and action is Christ at work in and through us. We do not need Jesus and something else. This is what's being perpetuated in sadly, many churches, many of some of the potent individuals you have followed over the last decade are getting caught up in this sinful idea of wokeness. And they're basically saying, you need Jesus and you need these other things. That's a false gospel. We need Jesus and Jesus alone to transform us and give us a heart and a mind and attitude that honors God and that thinks and speaks righteously. He's able to transform each of us, the most wicked of us, for it's the power of God to do this. Church, we must be so mindful not to allow any trend or habit or anything in us, in our flesh, to exercise sinful partiality, prejudice towards others. The gospel is our hope to change and sanctify what is broken about the way we live our lives. Praise God that He has done this in many of us, and He is doing it in us. If you are tired of injustice, of unloving partiality working itself out in our culture, See with me, the answer is the gospel. The answer is the church testifying and living out the transformation of the gospel. And it starts with you, Christian. It starts with how you live, how you love others. Paul says this in our verse today so that we see that masters, leaders honor the Lord when they do not have partiality for those they lead. Just like God doesn't have with us. With all of us under Christ equally. Church, it starts with us. It starts with how we live. It starts with how we speak. Do not speak down on others in a way that is partial. Don't even joke this way. And let us be oh so mindful to be careful of the teams that we kind of find ourselves leaning towards or playing on because in that can come sinful partiality may our team be Jesus may we walk by faith and not by sight I know, I know things are, are bad I know it looks like things are getting a lot worse the word says it's going to get a lot worse so we must train and armor up church. This is where Paul's going next in his letter, Ephesians 6 10 through 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. But that's next week. Until then, may we put to work the things that God has given us today. Opportunities to bring conviction, repentance, growth, maturity. May we not be hearers only today, but doers. And may we do this by God's grace and for His glory. Amen? Pray with me. Father, I thank you for this time together in your good word. To take a passage that people flying by are quick to want to omit, throw aside, say it doesn't It doesn't have any help to me. But Lord, your word is good. It proves to equip, transform, convict. And so I I thank you, Lord, for the work of the Spirit in each person here today. I pray for those who are still enemies of you. Still Lord of their own lives. Still thinking that they prefer to make their own way. Give them eyes to see and ears to hear by the wonderful movement of the spirit and the beauty of the gospel that they would just be undone. as they are given view to the depth of their sin, they're able to confess it and just a humility to trust Jesus, to love Jesus and serve Jesus with their days, to be transformed, to be renewed, to be reborn, to be saved. Bring salvation, Lord, in your perfect way and will. For those who do belong to you, who are saved, Lord, I pray we go to work in these things. Blessed to spend this time in your word together, to be moved and motivated to grow and mature, to correct what is false, what is disobedient, with what is true and obedient. What honors you, that many of us who are given opportunities or positions to lead, that we would lead in the ways that point to you, that that have the testimony of Christ at work, the very purpose of our days, that you would be glorified, that you would be exalted, that you would be known and praised. And so hear us now as we respond in song, prepare to go into the mission field before us, Be glorified in us. In Jesus' name we pray.